is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce those co-hosts. Anthony Appiah, teaching philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, Amy. How are you? I am good. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. Hello, Kenji. Hi, Amy. It's great to be here. It's very nice to be with you guys. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about internships and what they are good for, whistleblowing on past crimes, and apartment life and the elusive moral high ground. Okay, here's our first question. Dear ethicists, I am an established mid-career freelancer in a creative industry that has been in pretty dire financial straits for the last several years. A few months ago, I entered a short-term contract to complete a project with a major, prestigious name-brand company in my field, at below my usual rate, but the exposure was so good that I was willing to make the sacrifice. After I signed on, I learned that a 23-year-old unpaid intern was assigned to work with me. She was exceedingly professional and pleasant, and her work was impeccable. I would estimate that she put about 100 unpaid hours into my project, and she made it shine. Like all the other interns, she holds a master's degree in our field and was doing a full-time unpaid internship for a three-month term. This internship cycle repeats itself four times a year in perpetuity, ensuring the company has an endless supply of free labor. This is legal, or at least not illegal, in our state, and the company makes some token gestures to differentiate interns from employees, such as calling them learners and allowing them to set some of their own hours. The company aggressively recruits high-achieving young people through grad school alumni associations, touting the benefits of having such a big-name internship on your resume. But, for the most part, they haven't been hiring new people, especially not full-time, in recent years. The internship is not a foot in the door. I think this practice is unethical and takes advantage of ambitious and talented young people with big dreams. When I was at this intern's age and level of experience, 20 years ago, I had a full-time job doing almost exactly the same tasks, but at an entry-level salary of $50,000 per year with benefits. After we completed the project, I mailed the intern a thank you card with $70 worth of visa and grocery gift cards. She called me to say thanks and was so emphatic that I thought she was going to cry. She said she was embarrassed at how thankful she was. This just made me feel worse. I will soon have an opportunity to work with this company and another intern again. What is the ethical thing to do here? Should I make another pitiful gesture of compensation? Refuse the contract on principle? Or is the company's internship policy not my business? I can't decide whether my beliefs about unpaid internships are a personal stance, or if what this company is doing is just plain wrong. What do you think? Signed, name withheld. So it seems like there are two questions here. One is the ethics of unpaid internships in general, and then the second is what you should do uh, as a letter writer uh, vis-a-vis this particular intern. So... With respect to the first about the ethics of unpaid internships, it seems like there are arguments on both sides. This has been much debated in the public sphere, right? And the arguments are intuitive. On the one hand, they're open to exploitation. They exclude individuals who can't afford to take an unpaid position, so those individuals don't get a foot in the door. But on the other hand, they do have an educational value, and they give you, as the letter writer mentions, non-pecuniary advantages like the line in the resume that gets you the next job. So I come down 
thinking that there isn't anything unethical about paid internships per se, and that this would have to be a case-by-case assessment. And the touchstone for me, I know there are many uh, different factors here, but the dominant one for me is whether or not the intern is benefiting more than the organization. So is this truly an educational experience for the intern so that we can think about it as continuing education that allows them to grow into the profession as a kind of apprentice? Or is this simply sort of slave labor, unpaid labor uh, on the part of that the employer is, is extracting from the, from the employee? And here, given the facts that you've given us, it's a little bit ambiguous. Uh, the intern clearly benefited the employer with her 100 hours, but uh, she may also have learned an immense amount along the way. You know, we don't have a sense of that. So turning to what you should do ethically, you know, I certainly don't think you have an obligation to refuse the contract. And I would rather have you use your position to shape the internship so that it confers more of the positive aspects of unpaid internships and minimizes the downsides. So in other words, she's been assigned in part to you. So looking forward, you have a great uh, amount of agency in shaping uh, these internships so that they are educational experiences for your future interns. And then with regard to your past intern who was excellent, you could advance her career, thereby you know, giving her more of the non-pecuniary benefit of the internship by, for example, reaching out and offering her to write a letter of recommendation. I think there's a really interesting, sorry, I was just going to say, there's a really interesting theoretical point here, which I think is worth making because there's a there's a lot of discussion of these sorts of issues in relation to all kinds of cases where, where, where you might think you have exploitation. Um, when Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations uh, identified the market as a moral phenomenon, what he was noticing was that in, a, in an uncoerced exchange, at the end of the process, everybody's better off. The baker doesn't want all that bread. What he wants is money. I want the bread. At the end, I have the bread and he has the money. We both got what we wanted out of it. And this is an uncoerced exchange. Now, I think, I mean, I think that's sort of something to be said in favor of the market. But the fact is that when the background conditions are not just, when the background conditions are unfair, it's, it's not enough to defend a practice to say, hey, look, uh, nobody forced you to, 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 to do this. You can exploit people even if you're making them better off, even if she is getting the benefits, the non-pecuniary benefits, even if she is um, getting resume material, learning how to do things, and clearly working with a very competent uh, 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 co-worker here who, who's clearly concerned for her and, and, and wanting to show her how to do things. So even if she's getting all those things, it could still be exploitative if the background conditions are unjust. Now, as Kenji says, we don't really know enough about this industry in this context to be entirely clear, I think, whether that's true. However, it strikes me as very unlikely that there isn't something wrong in a situation where people with two degrees Right. Everybody in this field has a master's degree, are working for no money. It just seems to me there's something wrong with, a, with an industry and an economy that's producing a context in which highly trained people are being asked to work for months at a time for nothing. Even if they're getting something out of it, that can be exploitative, it seems to me. And even if that's true, which I agree with you, it seems to me very likely that that's true, no, one is, um, no one's life is improved by this letter writer not taking the contract. No, no one is better off if this person refuses to work with the company. And it seems to me um, that being both a competent person and a kind person, the letter writer is in a position to make things better specifically for the interns that he or she has contact with. 
And I think that um, acknowledging the background circumstances is important. I also think that this person is then in a position to make sure that the interns have both both of the things that they are looking for, which is both the educational experience and an opportunity for some sort of professional advancement. And I think that if the letter writer commits to that and encourages people at the company to commit to that as well, to making sure that not just calling these these interns learners, which is revolting, um, but actually giving them an opportunity to learn and to add to their skill set and to help them professionally after the internship would be, it seems to me, a genuinely um, good thing since the letter writer is probably not in a position to change the circumstances of the industry. Yeah, I, I think uh, so. I think we're sort of all on the same page about yeah. what to do. Take the job, be a good co worker and a, a manager for these interns, and make sure that you offer them support in their future through. Uh, letters of recommendation and that sort of thing, and maybe even telling them about uh, job opportunities in the field. Yes, real, real, real mentoring. Yeah. I think rather than the gift card um, would be a big step forward. Right. All right. Let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, I graduated college in the class of 2014, and now I work at a small nonprofit, and we fill a lot of our vacant positions through word of mouth. I recently posted a job in my college's career network and received the resume of an interested candidate who was in my year at school. I've never met this person, and I know him to have been a diligent student who won a prestigious fellowship during senior year. I know that he would probably be a leading candidate to get the job, and I know that by passing his resume on to the person in charge of hiring, I am implicitly giving my stamp of approval on the hire. The problem is that freshman year, He sexually harassed and attempted to sexually assault a good female friend of mine. A third party intervened before it escalated and brought her to me and a third friend for comfort after the incident. She decided to not bring the incident to any higher authority and she eventually worked through the difficult experience. But the thought of working with a man who brought so much pain to a good friend of mine is hard to swallow. Still, I don't know what the ethical thing to do is. It is not my story to share. And I do not want to bring the question to my friend for fear of opening old wounds. Am I allowed to share this information with the head of HR? Can I ethically hold an act committed five years ago against someone I never met and use it to determine his future job status? Is there a way to bring up my discomfort with him without outing him as a sexual assaulter? Would that be more ethical? Thank you for your time. Name withheld. Well, I think there are several sets of ethical obligations here. And I have to say, if I was absolutely sure that this happened and didn't feel any need to um, hear the other person's story or didn't, or didn't feel that without the other person's story, I was still in absolutely sure about what had happened, I might not pass on the resume, but I think that I would have a twinge about it. Um, I think that there are some very fine and competent and hardworking people who did some awful things when they were 18. I might even qualify as one of them. You can't speak me, up for the... sign up for that too. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't Absolutely. speak up for the victim for all the reasons that you indicated in your letter. It's not your story to tell. I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense to go back 
um, and, you know, say to her, hey, five years ago, you didn't want to talk about this or bring this up to the authorities, but now I'd like to, I feel that maybe I should bring it up to a potential employer so that they don't hire your former harasser. Um, that just doesn't strike me as, as a particularly helpful or, or even kind um, or ethical thing to do. Um, if you had wanted to be more engaged with the victim at the time, that would have been five years ago, um, and with her permission. And um, it doesn't seem right to me, actually, that you should pass this information along. Like, hey, you know, he won a fellowship, he's a really smart guy and a hard worker, but um, I know something about him that um, you would want to know, but I don't feel that I should tell you what it is, does not seem to me to be an ethical approach. And um, I, I totally agree with you, Amy. I, you said that there are multiple ethical obligations. One is, you know, to your female friend not to share a story, you know, without her permission, right? It's not your story to tell. The second is to the former harasser. So even if you do have definite knowledge that he did, in fact, harass you know, the friend in his freshman year. Again, this is something that he did when he was 18. Uh, but there, there's an uh, obligation, I also think, to the employer uh, not to introduce a former harasser into the workplace. So there are competing things that cut in different directions with regard to uh, what your ethical obligations are to these parties. Fortunately, you know, I think that there's a simple answer here. I don't think the answer is, and here I'm agreeing with you, Amy, to disclose the information. But I do think you have the discretion not to pass along the resume. You know, I think that strikes a balance of remaining discreet for both the victim and the former harasser's sake, right, when, who did something when he was a minor or a young adult, while not exposing your employer to the risks of hiring such an individual. Yeah, I think that's right, especially because, as you said, you, uh, in passing on the resume from someone in your uh, alumni circle, you are, and I mean, uh, without saying anything, you're definitely giving the impression that you think the person is okay. Because you can't explain why you don't think the person is okay, you, you, you have no choice except between giving a, a misleading impression sort of either way. And the best thing to do is to get yourself out of the business of, uh, of being involved with misleading impressions, which you can easily do, because after all, the only way this, this resume came into the, into the circle of consideration is because you use your alumni network to uh, ask for applicants. Yeah, I think the sticking point really is the implicit approval, because I think of other conversations that the three of us have had about the fact that sometimes good people do bad things. And um, you don't necessarily want to blight somebody's life for something that they did when they were 18. On the other hand, for the letter writer, there is the issue of implicitly approving a resume that they sent along. Whereas if the person had applied for the job and our letter writer was notified that the person had applied, um, there might not be a place for them to say, well, I have this major reservation. Maybe they would just say, I don't know this person, but they did win this fellowship. Um, but it's, it's having to pass it along with their own hands on the letter. I think that we all agree makes it, um, makes it a case where, one would be, where it would be 
the more ethical thing to do not to pass it along. There is an interesting connection here between this issue and the last one, which is that this is one of these cases where these informal hiring practices have the effect of excluding from consideration people who aren't in the networks, people who aren't in the alumni networks and so on. And so the whole business of the sort of deep unfairness in our society that flows from the fact that many of the most important opportunities are only available to a small subset of people uh, because uh, they're, uh, ex- they're, uh, they, they're channeled through these social networks, of, of which effectively are forms of privilege, is a really, I think it's a really important issue that I don't think we think enough about. Um, it's one of the reasons why um, affirmative action is so important, because affirmative action in- requires you to look beyond these networks. It says, if you're going to advertise in a newspaper mostly read by white people, you should advertise in a newspaper that's also mostly read by black people, if there is one in your community, and so on. Uh, You shouldn't just let job opportunities flow through the networks of the people who are already employed. You should let them flow through other ways as well. So this is a small not-for-profit. I'm not suggesting they set up a huge HR section and start doing (laughs) all this stuff. in a. They probably can't afford it. But but I do think that this case and the last both show, but both should remind us of a very important fact, which is that our uh, opportunities in our society are hugely skewed uh, by... Well, this is one of the things that Kenji referred to very early on, which was very instructive for me, which was the idea of the upstream problems and how they sort of change and color the water for all sorts of circumstances, including exactly this kind of situation. What is, what is the background of, of some of the problems? Thanks, Amy. And it also strikes me, though, that the silver lining... Uh, behind this very black cloud that uh, Anthony has presented is that there, if something is run by custom, uh, as this alumni network is, then there isn't a formalized process. So the employer is not saying you must, you know, you have an obligation to pass along all qualified resumes, right? That is not, at least as I right. understand the letter, uh, the right. requirement or the obligation that the individual is laboring under. This is a much more informal uh, process and so that informal process has the advantage, alongside the many disadvantages that Anthony pointed out, of allowing greater discretion on the part of the letter writer, so that the easy out here uh, or the simple answer here of just not forwarding on the the letter can be done without feeling like you're breaching, you know, a, a search policy or a recruitment policy that the employer has put in place. Right. So the employer isn't going. If the employer were to come to know that this is what you did. Uh, the, your employees, they, they wouldn't feel that you'd let them down in some way because you, you, weren't, you aren't breaching any, any, uh, any understanding that you have with them. You know, and I'm sure that's one of the things that often people who are in these informal systems really value, which is that for the individual passing on the information, it offers a lot of flexibility and some options. Now, the fact is, it also shuts out an enormous number of people who would benefit by being in the system. But you can see exactly from this conversation how it also um, makes life easier for the individuals who are passing along the information. On to our last question. Dear ethicists, roommate A found an apartment six plus years ago with roommate B. They split the broker's fee and signed the lease together. Over the years, A has had roommates cycle in and out. A now lives with roommate D, with whom she signed a lease three years ago, which was not renewed after the first year. Roommate A said to roommate D, When you graduate in May, I would like to live alone in the apartment we currently share. 
Roommate D was very upset, stating that both roommates had equal and moral rights to the apartment they were currently in. Roommate D wants one roommate to buy the other out with a broker's fee. Roommate A doesn't believe she should be the one to vacate the apartment or buy out roommate D since she has been there longer and paid the original fee for the place. She feels that New York City's unwritten apartment rules are on her side since the apartment quote-unquote belongs to whomever has been there the longest. Also, about a year into living together, the roommates were out to dinner with a mutual friend and roommate D said to roommate A, I never want you to get a significant other because you'd kick me out. So, D implicitly referenced and accepted the apartment was A's under New York City's unwritten apartment rules. Ethicists, what do you think? Who's right? Who should vacate the apartment? Signed, name withheld. Okay. <laughs> so, I have I have no idea. I mean, I would love to be uh, in a position to... Uh, to pay a lawyer to answer the question for me, what exactly the legal situation You're in luck! <laughs> no, because... no, 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 I'm not going to go there. <laughs> You're not going to go there. Uh-oh. I mean, this is, this is um, one of those interesting cases, which the letter nicely brings out, where there is almost certainly a difference between the normal uh, social understanding of people going on in some practice and what the law requires. My guess is, and this is a guess, I, am not, I happen to teach in a law school, but I'm not a lawyer, uh, my guess is that uh, since A and D signed the joint the lease jointly, they're from the point of view of, uh, of of the law, and indeed from the point of view of a certain social understanding, they they're they're equals in this thing. They they pay presumably equal shares of the rent. They have the same legal obligations for the uh, for the electricity bill and the, and all that sort of thing. So um, I, I myself uh, don't see that. Uh, the, either the fact of having gotten there first or the fact of having paid a finder's fee all those years ago, it's what, at least, what, five, seven, eight years ago? Six years ago. Six yeah. years ago, uh, really give you any special standing. And granted that you don't have any special standing, then it seems to me each of you is equally uh, is, is equally placed. And so if one of you wants to get the other one out, you're going to have to make a deal. You're going to have to persuade them. Even if I did think that the informal understandings, which I don't know because I don't, I don't, I've never been a roommate in your city, so I have no idea what the <laughs> informal understandings are. But even if the informal standing gives some weight to the priority of A, to the fact that A uh, was there first, or that even to the fact that A paid the broker's fee, it's not enough weight, it seems to me, from a sort of moral point of view, to outweigh the fact that what she's proposing is to put D into a very difficult situation. D, who can't afford uh, an expensive place, D, who is settled in the place now and wants to stay there and so on. So if it were a small thing that this priority was supposed to, uh, uh, was being claimed in favor of, I would say, well, okay, maybe. But it's not a small thing. It's a huge thing. It sounds as though it's difficult to find places like this in your city. So I would say, I don't know what the informal understandings are, but it seems to me that the, the, the basic situation here is that the two of you are jointly responsible for something. Each of you has the same obligations and therefore, I think, the same, the same uh, rights. Now, the story shows that you're already uh, not um, – you you're have an unhappy relationship. I'm sure that's common among people who uh, start as strangers when they live as roommates. And, um, and so uh, you're going to have to – 
your friends, since the letter writer is neither A nor D, uh, your friends are going to have to figure out how to uh, deal with one another in a respectful way, even though they have uh, currently a difficult relationship. When people start talking to each other about superior moral rights, uh, while living in the same accommodations, that's uh, that doesn't sound like a very good situation. But as I say, it seems to me that even if you think that the uh, the vernacular understandings around here uh, give some weight to A, they can't possibly be it can't possibly be a strong enough weight uh, to entitle A simply to kick D out. I think one of the things that having been in this situation more than once a long time ago, I feel like I have a certain sympathy with roommate A for having gotten there first and seen these people come and go and not so much about paying the share of the broker's fee a long time ago, but that this is one of the problems with informal understandings, which is both of these people have been living there with a certain sense of what the informal understanding is but having never made it explicit. It seems to me that roommate A would have been on much more solid ground if when she was signing the lease, she had also written up a little agreement which says, I think we both agree that I was here first and in the end, blah, 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 I get to make a certain decision. Now it's possible that that person would have a lot of trouble finding a roommate. But I think walking around with your your own interpretation, which is something we've also discussed in the in previous podcasts, that your own interpretation of no dogs in the park, your own <laughs> interpretation of no drinking by underage uh, people, you know, is not sufficient. That there has to be some way in which if you are engaged with other people, you make things explicit. And... Um, I, I think you're completely right, Anthony. I think that um, these people are now in the situation where they have to treat each other um, decently, and um, they have to um, they have to either flip a coin or make an offer or um, find a a way of of making this, um, as they say, about a good divorce, one in which both people are equally unhappy afterwards. <laughs> and I totally agree with both of you. And I would just uh, add on to uh, agree with what you said, Amy, which is that you know, even though this isn't in its origins like a, a legal issue, the fact that there is a legal form that would give you the high ground, namely a sublet arrangement where mm -hmm. A could have sublet the apartment in the first instance to D, you know, I think it's important, you know, that yes. if you don't do that and you sign up, you know, to uh, as joint individuals on a lease and then the lease lapses, it seems like the background condition is one of equality rather than one of inequality. And I guess the, I think you're absolutely right, you by know, the way. So I withdraw my remark about roommate A even having a speck of higher ground. Well, you're it may absolutely be, right. It may be. I mean, intuitively, I, I actually agree with you. So, I, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't withdraw too quickly in the, in the sense <laughs> okay, of Okay, like, then I pause. <laughs> you withdraw, you withdraw, you know. Like, I, I agree that there might be some. I, I like the way you put it, actually. And, and this is what I would associate myself with. Of there, uh, Both of you said, you know, there may be some higher ground, but it's just, just not enough here to carry the day. And I, I was actually troubled by the line uh, where... You know, I think this line actually cuts in both ways, where uh, roommate A is lofting up the line that roommate D said, I hope you don't get a significant other because then you would kick me out as evidence of the fact that uh, roommate D, you know, implicitly acceded to the idea that roommate A had the power to kick her out. 
on the one hand, yes, you could produce that as evidence, but is that really the world that we want to live in when we're in a community where we feel like, you know, all of our ta- record, uh, conversations are being tape recorded, and if we say something, uh, that might be used against us in uh, uh, really a, a, a legal or a property uh, context that um, that is going to be used against us. It seems like, again, you know, part of ethics is not being too um, pedophaging or uh, not parsing things too fine uh, when it comes to these kinds of, of issues. You know, as Anthony was saying, this is a really big deal. This is not just um, some nice-to-have kind of, you know, luxury item that we're uh, squabbling over. This is uh, where people live. So I do go back to the, yes, roommate A might have some higher ground, but surely not enough to um, change the the basic relationship of equality that they have, and they should flip a coin. And if you don't like the idea of flipping a coin, sit down and talk to each other and work out a plan. Absolutely. And that's it for The Ethicists. That's really it. This is our last podcast. But the column will go on with Antony Appiah. And if you'd like to send Antony your ethical quandary, you can reach him at ethicists at nytimes.com. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. Can I just interrupt you just to say how much I've enjoyed doing this with you, Emmy, and with you, Kenji, and uh, how grateful we are all are, I think, for this opportunity that we were given to think about these things together. I've certainly learned a great deal, and um, I'm grateful, too, to Kerry, who's... Uh, sitting here in the booth uh, looking at us uh, for her uh, wonderful work as, as our producer and um, editor. I completely agree. You know, it's been a joy to uh, work with you both, and I've learned so much. And Carrie, thank you so much for all of your uh, wise guidance. Well, I think it's true. The three of us have had a ball um, and learned things, and you, you don't get that that often. And um, Carrie has made us sound better and smarter as has everybody else at Slate and the New York Times. So for Anthony and for Kenji, thank you all for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>